I will never forget being 13 years old the first time that I saw Niagara Falls, which is a massive waterfall on the United States-Canadian border. Now, I had heard about Niagara Falls before. I heard my father talk about it. I had even seen pictures of it. But that was nothing in comparison to actually being there and seeing it. And I remember just seeing the size, just the magnitude of this waterfall. I remember walking along one of the walkways and being just overwhelmed by the sheer power of these waters falling on me. I don't believe it's possible to, to stand right next to something so grand and powerful, is so big, and to not be in awe of its beauty and power. You feel so small whenever you're next to something so big and glorious. And standing next to that waterfall for me really is a reminder of how small I am and reminds me of how we as humans have been created to yearn for glory. Every one of us desires to be thrilled by something. That's why we go on roller coasters. We want to be thrilled. There's a reason we, we all want to be fascinated by something. We, we all want to have this, this sense of being enthralled. We all want to be a part of something that is just beautiful. We all want to be a part of something that is much bigger than ourselves. And it's the reason why we create new technology and why all of us love, I shouldn't say all, but probably most of us love technology on some level. And the, the newest gadget, we love it. And there's a reason why we're always trying to create new things, new inventions, and push the envelope of technology. And that's, it's also this yearning for glory is there's a reason why we just marvel at beauty in nature. But it's also the reason why we all want to fall deeply in love with someone and to have this profound connection with another human being that is romantic. We, we, we yearn for it. We want it. We want to be a part of something beautiful and something magnificent. We want to lose ourselves in something glorious. Why? Why? Because our God is glorious. He has made us to yearn for it. He has made us to desire him who is the king of glory above all else. And so whenever we experience glory on this side of heaven, when we, when we look to things to fascinate, to enthrall us, it's because deep inside we're yearning for something much more than that, and that is Jesus, the creator who is all glorious. And he alone can truly satisfy these deep longings inside. And so we have been designed to see the glory of God with the eyes of our heart. And I believe it's impossible. I mean, it is impossible to get even a glimpse of God's glory and to then be unaffected. I mean, to, to even see 
just a glimpse of who God is just drops us to our knees. And so it changes us. And so we have been made to see, but then to delight in, to desire and delight the glory of God. And so as we continue in this, in this teaching series called Seeing God, we're going to be reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So please turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Be looking at verses 1 through 6. And we will see how our God has made us to revel in his glory. Again, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if her gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a powerful text. Just powerful. How we're told in verse 4, that we're made to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This profound set of verses describe God's ultimate and final purpose in redemption. And so God is at work even now in liberating people that are enslaved to sin. This is called redemption. He's at work in saving people, giving them eternal life, forgiving their sins, declaring us justified, so not guilty before God. He's in the process of healing our deep wounds, and he promises us heaven with him forever. And all of these remarkable blessings are promises that we can cling to. These are real promises that we have now, and it's possible because God the Father sent God the Son to become a human, to die in our place, to take our sin, our guilt, our shame, to defeat death, to be resurrected on the third day, and to offer us this forgiveness and justification that we're talking about. And it's available, all of these blessings, this salvation is available to anyone that completely trusts in Jesus and his work on the cross. But let's be clear. All of these blessings are not the ultimate and final reason that God offers us salvation. Hear me. These, all of these blessings are means to the ultimate end. All these blessings are means to accomplish God's ultimate goal in salvation. So it is possible to desire all of these blessings of redemption, forgiveness, justification, healing, the promise of heaven. We can want all of those blessings, 
and miss the whole point of why you're saved. It's easy to do. But this paragraph that God's revealed helps us see clearly the point, God's ultimate goal. In verse 4, it says, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in verse 6, the parallel thought, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It says here that the gospel, which is, gospel means good news. And so there is, he says, this good news, the gospel reveals the glory of Jesus. And so God shines his light, which is the gospel. So the gospel is the light. And he's shining this message of salvation so that the eyes of our hearts cannot be blind. So the light lets us see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So the gospel is the means that opens our eyes so that we can see Jesus. So we are saved by seeing the glory of Jesus. So if you're here today and you know that you don't know Jesus, you're seeking, you're not sure what you believe, but you know that you're not following Jesus, you're blind. You have not yet seen through the eyes of your heart the glory of of Jesus, and I pray that today your eyes will be opened and that you will see his glory and experience his great salvation. But God's goal in salvation is not that you will simply see his glory. Now, you have to see it to be saved. That's how we are saved through the gospel by seeing more glory in Jesus than anything else the world has to offer. So, we're saved by seeing Jesus. But the ultimate goal in salvation is not just to see him in his glory. God's purpose in saving you from your sins, he says, is that you will have, he says, the knowledge of the glory of God. This is why he is saving us. This is why our eyes are open, so that we will have the knowledge of the glory of God. So God has saved you so you can have this personal knowing. Like that word knowledge does not refer to a intellectual head knowledge. That's not what that means. This is a knowing personally, relationally. Like I know my wife. I don't just have knowledge about her background and where she came from. No, no, no. That's, that's just knowledge. I'm talking about a personal knowing. And so this is an experiential. You can know the glory of God. So he has saved you, opened your eyes through the gospel so that you can know and personally experience his glory. And so God offers you redemption, freedom from slavery to your sin. Why? So that you'll be free from your idols And you can then enjoy the glory of Jesus. So then God offers you justification. So he justifies you. Why? He declares you not guilty. 
because Jesus paid it all, so that you can be accepted by him and be close to him and enjoy his glory. And so then God gives you forgiveness. Why? So that your sins are canceled. So that you can be close to him and revel in his glory. And then he offers you healing. Your mind, your body, your soul, he heals you. Why? So you can be healthy enough to enjoy his glory. It all goes back. So everything that he is doing in salvation, everything that he is doing is for the purpose of you being able to be enthralled in, just delight in, lose yourself in Jesus, in his glory. To be overwhelmed by him. To stand amazed by him. To be so hungry for him that nothing else hardly matters. Come what it may be, you have him. And he offers us eternal life and eternity in heaven with him so that we will know him and enjoy him and delight in his glory forever. So this is what God is doing through the finished work of Jesus on the cross is for you to see, but then to enjoy the glory of Jesus. So this is the main idea of this text we've been talking about. I'll put it in a sentence for you. Here's the primary truth. is the purpose of the gospel is the seeing and enjoying the glory of Jesus. And so this is the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of your salvation is the seeing and the enjoying the glory of Jesus. Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In the Old Testament, Psalm 34 verse 8 describes this perfectly in one simple sentence. He says, oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We have been created and then we have been saved for the seeing and the tasting of the glory of Jesus. And so you might think, well, this is really important and very lofty and kind of deep and I'm beginning to get my head around my purpose for existing and why he has saved me. But how does this impact my life just practically today? Because I have kids to raise and bills to pay and a holiday to finance, which is not always easy. And I'm married, and sometimes, well, that's not always easy. And parenting is tough. And my job is hard or it's uncertain. So how does what you're teaching from God's word, how does it come home and impact me today? Let me give you three truths from this text on how we respond to this profound truth. Number one, in light of the seeing and tasting the glory of Jesus, we respond, number one, with constant praise of God. We respond to this truth with constant praise How can we see and be enthralled by the glory of God in the face of Jesus and then not 
respond with praise. Like, how is that even conceivable? That we see the glory of God on the face of Jesus and then be like, uh, well, that, that was okay, what's next? Like, nothing is next. There's nothing better to move on to. This is it. This is the end. This is the goal. This is why we exist. This is our eternity. There's nothing better. There's nothing to move on to but to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And it's a natural response to just praise what you love. This is what we do. We praise what we enjoy. We talk about, we speak highly of the things that we love and find joy in. And so we praise God because he's opened our eyes, opened our eyes. We're no longer blinded by the God of this age, Satan. And so we can see our sin. We can see our hopelessness. We can see how lost we'd be. We can, but we can also see how deeply God loves us. And we can see now clearly how he sacrificed himself on the cross so that we can live a life of praise. By the way, this is why Christians sing. Do you think we sing just because we like music? Or because Ashley is a gifted, artistic person and he has to do something with his gifts and so we might as well give him a guitar do something. No, no. Why do Christians sing? Do you know Muslims don't sing? They don't sing. As a matter of fact, in their prayer hour, they say, stop all the music. That happened to us this week on Monday night. We are rehearsing, not me. I was in the house, not in the room. I, I don't sing or play. But... They were rehearsing, and our neighbors said, stop the music, because it's prayer time in Ramadan. And so we had to respectfully stop rehearsal for a little while. Muslims don't sing and don't want music in their spiritual hour. Buddhists don't sing. Hindus don't sing. No religion sings. No faith on this planet gathers together to sing praises to their God, except we're the only ones that do. Why? Why do we sing? Because unlike the rest of the world, we have something to sing about. Our eyes are open. We've tasted that God is good. And so singing is just a natural response to being overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, which is why we're gathering tonight at 6 for a prayer and praise service, we're going to sing. We'll pray, and you will share testimonies as well. I'll read scripture. I'm not going to preach, though. We're going to praise him. The Bible commands, sing to him. Sing a new song to him. We'll obey his word and sing. And quite honestly, if you think, well, I don't want to sing. I just want to hear the preaching. That's not healthy. I'm sorry. But that's not healthy. Something is not well with your soul if you don't want to sing to Jesus. Now, personalities will range. That's fine. I get that. But on some level, if you don't yearn to sing to Jesus for what he's done for you, I ask you to examine yourself. Why not? This is what we do. Singing is an expression of our affections, our gratitude, our worship, of Jesus. 
Because as believers, we're no longer in darkness. We're no longer blinded by Satan. We have seen the glory of Jesus, and this should impact us. And so we sing songs like, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And that's true. Actually, we'll sing that song tonight, and it's a great song. And we should sing about how we've decided to follow Jesus. We've decided to praise him. But we have to understand what we mean when we sing, we have decided to follow Jesus. This decision is not like a decision to, say, buy a used car. It's not the same kind of decision. Because when you go buy a used car, there's no turning back, right? You have decided to drive this car, no turning back, no turning back. Because you buy an old car, there's no refunds. If three months later you're disappointed because the AC is blowing hot, because the transmission has gone out, and you think, well, it's not worth enough to sell, I have to go ahead and repair it, and so I've decided to drive this car, I have no choice, I'm going to have to fix it. It's let me down, but I have to fix it, no turning back, I'm in a decision. And sometimes we think of following Jesus and praising him in that same way. We think, I decided to follow Jesus, but my life hasn't turned out the way I thought. What I really want isn't turning out. I'm disappointed with Jesus. I don't, I don't like this product that I've decided to follow. But hey, I decided to follow Jesus. I'm stuck with him now. I wish it would have turned out better, but Jesus really isn't pulling through for me. But, you know, where else can I go? I guess I'll just keep trying Jesus out. That is not seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. You see, when we have this mentality that Jesus is a product that we purchase, that we try out, and then it lets us down and we're disappointed, what tends to happen is our souls drift so far from him, disappointment begins to creep in, fear, addiction, no hope for real change, and we're disappointed with Jesus and with life. The problem isn't Jesus. I promise you he isn't the problem in this equation. He is God. He is all-glorious. He is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's doing, and he wants you to trust him. And to know that what he's working out is for your own blessing, for your good, and for his glory to be manifested through your life. But you're not submitting to him. And so you think, well, I've decided. But see, here's the problem. The problem is that we think that we've decided, but deciding is secondary. First, it's seeing. You see his glory. And out of seeing it, the deciding to follow is a natural reality. It's kind of like, now, I've never been there, but I've, I've read about this. If you go to Victoria Falls, which is the largest waterfall in the world, it's bigger than Niagara Falls. It's on the border of Zambia and Zimbabwe in Africa. Now, this waterfall, from what I read, has over a million liters that flow per second. I mean, it is just an astounding waterfall. Can you imagine if you went with a friend and you stood there and you're just gazing at this and, and you're just so humbled, you feel so small, and your friend says, so what's your decision? 
You'd be like, well, what do you mean? I'm just awestruck. I'm just in awe of the magnitude of this waterfall. Is yeah, well, what's your decision? That's a dumb question. There's no decision to be made. It's just to be in awe of it, to be blown away, to stand amazed by it, to want to keep looking at it. And so when we truly are awestruck by Jesus, when we are truly overwhelmed and enthralled by his love and his mercy and his infinite glory, there is no decision. There's no decision to be made. The decision is already made. It's amazing. Jesus is amazing. He is glorious. The decision is already made. Yes, we're going to follow him no matter what life brings because he's worth it and he's better and he's good. And we rest in him because he is glorious. And so our following Jesus, our praising him, comes out of being in awe of him. You won't want to turn back, no matter what happens. Having his presence in your life and praising him, a lifestyle of praise will lead you to hate your sin. It will lead you to hunger for holiness and for good relationships. And so the natural response of, of seeing and tasting the glory of Jesus is wanting to experience more of it. So we push away your sin that will cloud his presence. And so if we find ourselves wondering, well, maybe I shouldn't have decided to follow Jesus, or maybe Jesus isn't pulling through for me, or or maybe if we find ourselves a little bit too comfortable with our sin, you know what you need? You need to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You need to keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You have to keep beholding Jesus. Keep looking to him and seeing his mercy and his love and his sovereignty, which you can rest and keep looking to him. And then following him will be natural. Praising him will be natural. So is your life marked by constant praise? If not, beg the Spirit of God to open your eyes so that you will see him more. That Jesus would be more real to you. Beg his spirit to open your eyes so you can see the hidden idols in your own heart. We have been created to see and to taste the glory of Jesus. And we respond with constant praise of God. But number two, we respond with constant perception of the blindness around you. Constantly aware of the people around us that are still blind, who have not seen his glory yet. You see that in verses 3 and 4. We read it earlier. 
And even if her gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we are surrounded by people that are far from God. They says they are perishing, the text says. So they're spiritually dead, and they are headed for eternal death and separation from God's love. So they're spiritually blind, the text says. So the God of this age, our enemy Satan, has blinded them. And so because they're spiritually blind, they have no capacity to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. They can't see it. They don't see his worth. They don't, they don't see him because they're blind. But they also have no taste for the goodness of Jesus. So they don't see and taste that the Lord is good because they're blind and they don't, their palate can't stand the gospel. The gospel actually offends those that are blind and perishing. So someone who doesn't know Jesus, when they hear that there is a God in heaven who made them and that this God loves them deeply and that he showed this infinite love by sending his son to die on the cross in their place, and then that this same Jesus who is the king now calls that person to confess that he or she is a sinner, deserves hell, must repent of their sin, and completely trust in this resurrected king, and that this Jesus calls this sinner to humbly bow down in adoration of the king. And then he says, let me fill you, and you find your joy in me, and find your purpose in me. Receive my mercy that you don't deserve. And define your whole existence by me and submit to my loving authority and taste that I am good. Well, the person who doesn't know Jesus, when they taste this, they go, gross, and they spit it out. They're repulsed by it. They're like, me submit to the king and bow down to him? Let him define me and fill me and my joy in him? No, I don't think so. I'm good. No, thank you. I'll pass. That tastes gross. They can't taste that God is good. They don't want it. They're blind. And they have no taste. But when God opens the eyes of a sinner and they experience spiritual resurrection, this new birth, and they have been recreated by the Spirit of God, what happens, that person now has a taste for the gospel, a new taste, new desires. And they taste it, and it's sweet. And it tastes so good. And we hear words like hope and forgiveness and restoration and mercy and joy. It's the air that we breathe. But there are those who don't know. They're blind. They can't, they can't handle the message because God hasn't opened their eyes yet. But we have to live with a constant 
awareness, this perception that there are people around us who don't see the glory of Jesus. They don't know the joy of forgiveness. They don't know God's presence. They don't know. They need to know. We have to look around. You know, five days ago, a man named Omar Mateen walked into a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, in the U.S., and he shot over 100 people. 53 were injured, 49 were killed by this one man. It's just such a tragedy. But sadly, I've heard Christians say things that just have grieved my soul. It's just astounding how other Christians say, well, good, they're just gays, or, yeah, it's kind of sad, but they were gays anyway, so it's not that bad. And I've just heard so many things that have just been so painful. I just think, really? These are people made in the image of God who Jesus loved and he died for them. Our hearts should be heavy and broken over a tragedy like this. The people in that nightclub, they're blind. They're just trying to make sense of this life, and they're just trying to find joy however they know how, and they're trying to find meaning and acceptance. Yes, it's evil. Yes, it's dark. I'm not denying that, that it's wrong, but they're blind. The God of this age has blinded them, and they don't see the glory of, of God in the face of Jesus because they can't. And what they need, people who we would find in one of those gay clubs, needs people that are in this room to be loving enough to say, Jesus loves you. And there's a better way to live that's with real joy, real meaning, and real satisfaction, and real purpose in the presence of God in your life. We need to tell them. Which is the last point, that we live with a constant praise of God, a constant awareness of blindness, and with a constant proclamation of the gospel. Verses 1 and 2, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cutting or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. So he says that by God's mercy, we have this ministry of sharing this good news, this gospel that is the light that opens the eyes of the blind. And so by God's mercy, we have received mercy. And so now by God's being good to us, he gives us this ministry. And we do not lose heart. We are not discouraged, but we are confident. We are not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed of Jesus. But we don't have to sell it. We don't have to convince people. We don't have to dilute it. It says by tampering with the word. We don't tamper with it. All we do is proclaim it. We simply 
share the good news with a clear conscience, he says, by the open statement of truth in the sight of God. Open statement. We're just being clear about how God loves the lost and Jesus came to save them. And we're just the messengers and we do it constantly. Verse 5 makes this clear. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves, as your servants for Jesus' sake. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. We tell people. We don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus. We serve the world by proclaiming Jesus as the risen, resurrected Lord who is the Lord of even those who are blind to his glory. He is still the king. You can be blind to the sun, but the sun is still there burning hot. Even if you can't see it, even if you're blind, that doesn't change the reality. The sun is still there. Jesus is still king. He's still glorious. And so we must be engaged and active with telling our friends and our neighbors. It can be as simple as come with me on a Friday morning to a worship gathering. But it could be inviting them to your home group. It could be having coffee with the lost person to just build the relationship so that you can then in a natural way speak the truth of what Jesus has done to save them. But we have to be intentional with this. This is what it looks like when we have tasted and we have seen the glory of Jesus. It should impact us so much that we just respond with, with constant praise. We respond with a perception to the blindness around us and with the proclamation of the gospel to those who don't know. And this is my heart for this church. It's just, it's just heavy with the desire for us to be a church that is so seeing the glory of, of God in the face of Jesus that it just responds with making more disciples for his glory. And so may you so hunger for Jesus and to see his kingdom expanded, that people will see his glory reflected through your life. And then when you can then intentionally share this good news, they'll believe you. The Spirit will be active. There will be a missional church. May this faith family be a light to the nations. And may God's Spirit use us to open the eyes of the blind, to see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, and the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we are just in awe of you. It's overwhelming and even emotional when we reflect on how you've loved us and you've saved us. You've been so merciful, and then you entrust us with this ministry. Thank you. I just pray that you would help us to be a church that's truly on mission that we be a church that is so hungry for you to just see you, to know you, to revel in your glory, that we can't help but respond 
with lives that reflect your glory. We want to see more people come to faith in you, Jesus, so we pray that you would help us and use us for your glory to expand your kingdom. We pray it in your name, Jesus.